Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, this week is our last week in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. We've spent the last four weeks Uh, sitting and just slowly moving a little bit deeper every single week into this prayer of Paul's. We've spent time walking through it through Lectio Divina. Last week we got a little bit into some of Paul's opening language and his two petitions in this prayer. And this week I want to sum up the whole of his prayer. Uh, my in-laws are in town this week, and I, uh, were, uh, I was trying desperately to convince both them and my wife to watch a show that I have been waiting to come out. I've read all the books that lead up to it, so even though I know what's happening, I was so excited for it. But how do you sum up five books worth of material to convince them with a pitch? And I'm an Enneagram 5, so I have a tendency to speak in paragraphs, so it's not short, and usually my explanation and my pitch ends up being as long as one of the episodes. And so how do you sum up something that every single time over the last few weeks we've held it up has given us something new to reflect on, some new good piece of news? Well, here's how I would attempt to sum up the whole of what Paul is trying to pray for here, and it is this. At the heart of this prayer by our brother, our friend Paul, is an invitation to make our home in God who has already made his home in us. The invitation at the heart of this prayer is to make a home in God who has already made his home in us. In fact, I would argue that this is, if you were to take a whole entire summary of the sweep of Holy Scripture, of all of the stories, their ups, their downs, that it is the story of God inviting us to make our home in him, for he has already made our home, his home in us. This is God walking in the garden, the creating of the garden. Scholars have recently picked up on the fact that the way Moses writes the creation account mirrors God's instructions of building the tabernacle, which would be the place where he rested in the midst of his people while they were in Exodus. So the story begins that way. God looks at Moses in in Exodus 25 and says, I long to be in the midst of my people, to make my home in them, or for them to be at home in me. It's the hope of the prophets, prophets like Zephaniah who write, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will rescue. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. It's the incarnation itself, that God has come in flesh and become the human God to dwell in our midst, to move into the neighborhood. It's the sending of the Holy Spirit as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13, where the home of God is no longer out there, it is in here, in the innermost parts of who we are. Howard Thurman, who I mentioned last week, civil rights leader, pastor, was a mentor to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In his book, Meditations of the Heart, in one of the opening meditations, describes the innermost parts of us 
as an eternal sea, that the only thing allowed in that space is God. We're not always aware of it, we're not always in touch with it, we're not always there ourselves, but God is, and it is an unshakable space, protected by the divine trinity itself. The story of God is still the story of the world, and it is a story of God making his home in us, and him inviting us to make our home in him. But that isn't the rhythm of the human story, right? The human story is a story of coming and going. It's a story of promised land to exile, then back to promised land, then back to exile. It's a story of wandering and returning and wandering again, of orientation and disorientation and reorientation. And this will be, God tells us, the pattern until God gathers us one last time. And for all of eternity, as God in Jesus declares from the throne, my home finally is with man, and all humankind is at home with me. And so this begs the question, though, why do you and I need to return home? If God's invitation to us is to make a home in him, and that he has already made a home in us, then why is it that we need to return home? And as many of us know, as my own life would testify, and I'm sure many in this room would, because we will inevitably look outside of ourselves for what is already ours to the core. You and I will inevitably look outside of ourselves for what is already ours to the core. St. Augustine, who in this quote, in his confession, sounds like a Zen master. Listen to him. Why do you want to speak and not listen? You are always rushing out of doors, but are unwilling to return into your own house, for there you will find God within. St. Augustine, who embodied this story of wandering, as James K. Smith in his book On a Road to St. Augustine puts it, embodies a migrant spirituality. This wandering, looking for God all over the place, only to find that God was at home in him the entire time. An invitation to remember that in some ways, much of our pain and much of our discomfort comes from the fact of believing that here and now is our home and forgetting that you and I were created to be at home in God. As Jamie Smith points out, that is what migrants know. They carry home with them while they look for it. They both wander and are at home in themselves. And I would argue that we are created by God and that the root of all our desires is this longing for oneness with God. In fact, I think one way to understand sin, and we've talked about this before, is simply as disordered desires, as good desires that are fulfilled in the wrong things. I've described it before as a river that is good and beautiful as long as it stays within its banks. But the moment that it begins to flood the banks, it becomes dangerous. Too many of us have been taught in dealing with our own sin, the ways in which we've missed the mark of the good life is just to cut desire off at the root. And I think that embedded in the teachings of Jesus is it getting back in touch with our desire because at the root of all our desire is a desire for communion and union with God. In fact, just take the seven deadly sins. Gluttony. At the heart of gluttony is a desire to enjoy the good gifts from God. 
Lust is, a, is a, at its root is a desire to be loved and love God. Greed is a desire to enjoy the good things of God. Pride is a desire for the affirmation of God. Wrath is a desire for the justice of God. Sloth is the desire for the rest that God promises. Envy, a desire for the happiness of God. And the reason why we move toward those things is because our desire is being, we're seeking to fill that desire in something other than God. Our deepest longings are longings for communion and union with God, but we sabotage it. Our desires become disordered, they become disoriented, and the voice of the serpent in the garden and Satan in the wilderness is in our minds and all around us whispering things like, surely you haven't done enough. Surely you deserve more. One more drink, one more binge of porn, one more promotion, one more award, one more day of vacation, one more purchase. This will fulfill what you desire. And this is the nature of the divided heart, that the things I want to do, I don't, and the things I don't want to do, I do. James Finley puts it this way. He says, quote, On the one hand, there is the great truth that from the first moment of my existence, the deepest dimension of my life is that I am made by God for union with himself. The deepest dimension of my identity as a human person is that I share in God's own life, both now and in eternity, in a relationship of untold intimacy. On the other hand, my own daily experience impresses upon me the painful truth that my heart has listened to the serpent instead of God. There is something in me that puts on fig leaves of concealment, that kills my brother, that builds towers of confusion, and brings cosmic chaos upon the earth. There is something in me that loves darkness rather than light, that rejects God and thereby rejects my own deepest reality. That rejects God and therefore rejects my own deepest reality as a human person made in the image and likeness of God, unquote. We look everywhere for what is already ours in God. The contemplative tradition, and again, this is, uh, this is one of those quotes and one of those ideas that's attributed to a lot of different people, so I don't know what woman or man said it. But the analogy that oftentimes is used in a lot of the contemplative sayings and writings is that of you and I wandering along with buckets, filling them up at cisterns of dirty water because we are thirsty, ignoring the fact that in us, in the deepest parts of us, is a fountain of life. This is Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. You think you're thirsty, come to me and I will give you waters of life. To which, what is her response? Let's do it. Give it to me that I may never thirst again. We look everywhere, friends, for what is already ours in God. And so I think one of the, well, a few questions that God extends to us through this prayer is what if it was all already yours? What if you don't have to look outside? What if God doesn't wander, but you wander, but I wander? Paul invites us to return to the God who never left, to return home to the God who is already at home in us. In this prayer, Paul states that oneness, our belovedness, our belonging, our worthiness isn't something that we conjure up. It's something we've received. 
It's something that is given. It's something that is bestowed from outside of us. He writes, I pray that you have the power to comprehend, not muster up, not make yourself presentable, not figure things out in a way, but he says comprehend, understand with all the saints. So in case we're tempted to fall into the old pattern of just invite Jesus into your heart and it's all about us, but he says with all the saints, this is something that covers the church. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? Paul, didn't you pray for us to comprehend? Yes, but it surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with what? The fullness of God. In Paul's other letters, and he wrote a lot of them, his shorthand for this was in Christ. In fact, over 160 times, he does not call you a Christian, a follower of Jesus. He refers to you as a woman, as a man in Christ. 160 times. For those of us who have said yes to the availability of God's kingdom, you and I are in Christ. It is the governing reality of our lives. As one medieval theologian described it, it's as if the same blood flows through your veins and Christ. Which means that our following of Jesus, friends, spiritual formation, discipleship, transformation, whatever you want to call it, is not, listen, this is everything. It's not about becoming something you aren't. It's about becoming what is already true of you. It's about bringing our lives in alignment to what is already true, what is already said. Little by little, living into the reality of who God says we are. That Christ may make his home in you. Again, too easily we talk about inviting Jesus into our hearts, and yet what Paul seems to be saying here is about us entering into Jesus. Putting down roots into what is already true. I pray that as you trust in him, I've said this before, but a better translation for trust is relax. I pray that as you relax in Jesus, that your roots will go deep into the soil of his great love. If you know, rooted is agricultural and grounded is architectural metaphors. I love Paul. It gives me a lot of freedom to just mix metaphors. But what Paul is asking for is that the Trinity's very life would be the soil of our lives, the foundations on which we build everything. If you know, soil and foundation mean everything to a gardener, to a structure. If your plant's not growing, one of the first things they'll ask you is to take a test of the soil. If all of a sudden cracks start to show up in your ceiling and on the walls, you don't go, maybe we need more plaster. Maybe the problem's with the paint. For a moment, you might be able to paint over it and for a while it'll go away, but again, the crack will show up. Why? Because the problem isn't with the paint color or the paint type. There's something going on in the foundation. Our lives, friends, are designed to give us the results we're getting. And we were created for the soil of our lives, for the foundation of our lives to be the conversational relationship of love that is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the invitation to us, 
the heart of this prayer is to put down roots in the very life of God and little by little make the life of God, which Paul's shorthand for that is love, to be the foundation for every aspect of our lives. And so here are, as I have been reflecting and sitting with this prayer of Paul's, here are a few questions I've been sitting with this week that I want to extend to you as a way of examining our lives as we continue in this season of ordinary time. And the first question I want to extend to you is, where have you wandered? Where have you wandered? And if you're like me, there can be shame here, a lot of shame, guilt. I don't think that's how God intends for us to ask this question. I think the question here is intended to be asked just to notice in a way that is non-judgmental, to just ask, where have we wandered? Again, many of us have been sold an image of God that's like, where have you been? As if the anxiety response of our own parents or our own parenting is somehow the image of God. And yet the image that Jesus gives us, and Jesus goes, if you've seen me, if you've listened to me, you've seen the Father. The image that Jesus gives us in the prodigal son, in the story of the prodigal son, is not a father who upon the prodigal's return, who in his wisdom allowed both sons to wander. Remember that from the story? In his own wisdom, he allows it. And when they return, he doesn't ask the younger son, where have you been? Why would you do that? Where's my money? Why do you smell like that? There are no questions. There is only hospitality and welcome. The son can still smell the pigs, and the father can too. Where have you wandered, friends? Where have you wandered? And the second question is just to name what the fruit of that wandering has been. It's been the good life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And that question is, the question, has it actually been freedom? In our cultural moment, we love to think, as, we love to think of freedom as freedom from. I get to do whatever it is I want. There's a particular kind of life Jesus has made available to us. And the third question is, do you, and I think this is an important one because even if naming our wandering and naming what the fruit of that wandering has been, the question each of us must sit with is, do we want to come home to God who is already at home in you? Do you want to? And maybe the answer right now is no. That's okay. God's not anxious. God's not worried. God tells incredibly long stories. Incredibly long stories. Do you want to come home to God who is at home in you? To with David in Psalm 27 say the one thing I ask for. The one thing. The one thing I ask from the Lord and this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And in that day, David's referring to the beauty of an actual structure. 
But in context of the coming of Jesus and the availability of the kingdom, he's speaking of something in the deepest parts of you. Then my final question is, what do you need to come home? What do you need in order to come home? For many of us, it's healing. For many of us, it's healing. Parts of our story, parts of our bodies, parts of our emotions, relationships. We are in desperate need of healing. Maybe it's not healing, maybe it's help. I always think of uh, the, the lame man who was brought to Jesus in Luke chapter five. He don't walk there himself. He's brought on a mat by his friends who are willing to go to incredible lengths to rip off the house, the roof of someone else's house. That's a friend, y'all. Like, oh no, what do you need? You mean to rip off that roof? Done. Some of y'all probably a little too, little too like, yeah, who's, who's what, we're ripping off a roof? Let's go. You're dragging your friend. Your friend's like, no, 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 I can walk. And you're like, no, I'm coming. I think it's one of the most beautiful metaphors we have for the church. The importance of why we gather, not just in these spaces around this table, but around our tables and cafe tables and restaurant tables. Each one of us is sitting by our own pool of tears. Each one of us carries our own pain, our own hurt, our own stories. And each of us in different seasons will find ourselves in different spaces of either being the friend that picks up our friend and carries them to Jesus, or inevitably, we will find ourselves as the one flat on our back needing to be carried. Do you need help? And maybe it's even help from Holy Spirit to give us the courage the strength and the healing to be able to come home. And friends, here was what I'll say. I think it's Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Thomas Merton or somebody. Again, I had so many quotes in my head, I probably need to write them down. Somebody said, it was Nicole. Nicole said this once. <laughs> that a longing for grace is actually the very beginning of it. And I would say the same is true of healing and the same is true of coming home. The desire to come home is the very beginnings of home. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.